After each of my four children were born, I spent time wondering about the course their lives would take. What did God have in store for their futures? What would God call them to vocationally? Would they be called to singleness or marriage? And if it was marriage, who would they choose to marry? As a youth pastor, I ask the same questions about my students, especially as marriage has declined in our culture. I would oftentimes pray for my own two daughters, asking God to provide good husbands if in fact marriage was in his plans. I also knew that I shouldn't just sit back and let nature take its course, but that I had to prepare them to choose well. Tom Stein has written a very helpful letter to his own daughter about choosing a godly husband, and that letter is what we're talking about on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Youth Culture Matters, and we're going to talk today about a subject that gets a lot of time and a lot of attention, I think, in our culture. People come at it from, as you can imagine, in today's world, a variety of different perspectives, and that happens to be marriage. There's been a lot written about marriage, especially coming from our world of of Christianity and folks who are trying to reclaim the sanctity of marriage and promote marriage. One of the reasons for that is we know that in today's world, if we look at the statistics, and I pulled some of these up today, that the number of marriages and the marriage rate has declined. I looked at this. Uh, In 2000, there were 8.2 marriages per 1,000 people in the population. And uh, this comes from uh, the government. This is one of their statistics on marriage. So 8.2 per 1,000, that was the, you know, a marriage rate. Uh, And then in 2019, just 19 years later, that had dropped from 8.2 per 1,000 to 6.1. And when you read the commentary on marriage and you look at marriage or you just talk to people, you realize that our sense of marriage is declining. I'm sure there's multiple reasons for that, just a general tide of how culture is going. I think we've got a lot of young people who have grown up in families where marriages have been, they've been miserable uh, marriages have fallen apart, and a lot of you know kids that we've talked to over the years have said, you know, why would I want to enter into that? I don't want to have happen what happened to my parents. And so cohabitation's on the rise now. I looked at this from the Pew Foundation. Back in 2002, the number of or the percentage of adults ages 18 to 44 who have ever cohabitated was 54% and the number of adults ages 18 to 44 who had ever been married was 60%. So the marriage rate was was higher for that group back in 2002. When you go just a few years ahead to the period that Pew looked at between 2013 and 2017, that had flipped. 59% at this point had ever cohabitated, so that had risen, and it exceeded the number who, who were married, ever married. That dropped by 10%. From 60% in 2002 to 50% in 2017. And so, and now we have too, the, the research is saying 
Most Americans, 69%, say cohabitation is acceptable, even if a couple doesn't plan to get married. So, I mean, those are just some statistics that reflect some of this. And as a dad, or even as someone involved in youth ministry, you know, I'm I'm really concerned about this. I have two sons and two daughters. Three of my children are married, and especially for my daughters, you know, you pray from birth for the person that they will marry, that they will marry a godly man. We prayed for our sons as well, that they would marry a godly woman. And, you know, one of the one of the concerns that I've heard in recent years, and I think it's very legitimate, I can't write it off, is you'll, you'll talk to a lot of young women, uh, young Christian women who are remaining single. And, and by the way, there's a calling to singleness. We may hit on that as well. We don't want to diminish that in this conversation. But a lot of them will say, you know, look, I've tried dating Christian guys, and I can't find any. Uh, or if I find them and they're professing faith, they're just they're just miserable people. Uh, there's so much about them that's not good. And so, you know, this has been on our minds here at CPYU for years. We encourage youth workers and parents to talk about love, to talk about marriage, to talk about sexuality and gender from a biblical perspective. And a couple of weeks ago, I was reading uh, the latest edition, uh, a February 20, January, February 2022 edition of Touchstone Magazine. If you're not familiar with Touchstone Magazine, just go to touchstonemag.com and you can learn more about this. And it's one of the meatier uh, Christian magazines that I really do trust. And as I was turning through this edition, I get to page 22 and I see this two-page spread under the the, the heading of Views, and it, the title of this article is A Letter to My Daughter, Tom Stein on the Seven L's of Husband Hunting. And as I read it, it was one of those articles that just put a smile on my face because I thought, here's a dad who's communicating to his daughter, clearly, this is what I hope and pray that, that you will look for in a husband and that God would, would grant this. And then I got to the end of the article and I read, that Tom is the associate pastor of Chapel Presbyterian Church in Beaver, Pennsylvania, which, of course, is very close to where I went to college, Geneva College in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. Chris Wagner, who's here in the studio with me, graduated from there as well. And Tom's also an instructor in the adult degree program at Geneva. So we decided let's get Tom on here and let's talk about this letter to his daughter. So Tom Stein, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So talk a little bit about what it was that prompted this for you. Well, the irony is that it wasn't my daughter. The irony is that, as, as you just mentioned, we are near Geneva College, and so we have a pretty good contingent of Geneva students who, who come and worship with us. And, and one day I was sitting with a young woman who is my daughter's age. My wife and I were sitting with a young woman who is my daughter's age. And she was in, she's in a relationship where she's been questioning, is this man someone that I can marry, someone I should marry? And I, and I really got to thinking about it and thinking to myself, what, what should I say to her about how to evaluate really this guy? And then I thought, well, what would I say to my daughter at this point? My daughter at that point was, I would say, probably a junior in college. She had not done a lot of dating. She's someone who will be very thoughtful about who she marries. But I thought, really, what would I say to my daughter? And so I thought, well, let's lay it out. What, what would I say to her about 
what to look for in a man because everything you've already said are the kind of dynamics she feels. Uh, she wants to marry a godly man. She wants to marry a man who will exhibit a lot of these characteristics, but it's not always easy to find. So this letter to my daughter really has its genesis in my counsel to another young woman of the same age. And I like that because as I was reading the letter again this morning, and I've read it about four or five times, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've got uh, two daughters who are married, one son who's married, one son who's single. I'm going to send this to all seven of them because this is not just, I would I would say, like a preparatory piece of writing, you know, that, that helps us look forward. But it really is one that it was challenging to me as a guy who was going to be married 40 years. Uh, I almost didn't want my wife to read it. Uh, I was kind of afraid, you know, that it would serve like a report card and she would come to me, you know, and point at the different L's and help me understand this. But it's good for me because, you know, we're, we, are, we are people in process, and you do mention this in the article, that the, the man you marry will, will become something, and certainly we want to be moved closer and closer to Jesus Christ. Who was it? Was it Lewis Meads who, who once said, there's this famous quote from him, he said, um, I've, I've been, uh, I've been my, my wife married five different men, Yes. And all of them are me. Yes. And I just thought that's, you know, brilliant, hopefully about about growth r- rather than moving backwards, you know, in terms of our ability to be a husband. I uh, let me ask you this before we get into the, the letter. You're a pastor. Yes. So you're you're dealing with lots and lots of folks, as you've said. What is it in the culture right now? I mean, I mentioned statistics, but is there anything off the top of your head that you're going, man, I, this, this concerns me in the culture, the attitudes about marriage and culture, or some of the beliefs our kids be, are being convinced just because they swim in this cultural soup. They're convinced to believe that, that drive their behavior in terms of marriage. You know, what are some of those that you are most concerned about that you could help us as parents and youth workers and even other pastors take note of? I'm a little bit more familiar with Christian culture than I am with the general culture. But what I would say is that the word I would attach to most of the young Christian people I meet is fear. And what I mean by that is they've been raised mostly in Christian homes, or they've been raised in homes where they have not had Christian influence, but they want to have a Christian home, and they're fearful they're going to get it wrong. And they know the Bible does not commend divorce except in very narrow situations and so they're afraid they're going to get it wrong and and so there's sort of a walking on eggshells quality of and i felt that a little bit in this young woman of i don't want to mess this up you know there's these things about this guy that that are good there are these things about this guy that i'm struggling with and it's sort of a walking on eggshells mentality of of the fear of blowing this. And in some ways, that's good. You want to be serious about this. But if you're paralyzed by fear, and if you're, you're out there and you're getting all these cultural signals, and you're getting all these signals from your friends, and you've got all this noise coming at you, you don't really know what to do. And that fear both paralyzes you and, and confuses you and you don't know what it is you're looking for. You know, a Christian's going to say, okay, I want to marry another Christian. Most Christian young people I talk to get that. But beyond that, 
they're paralyzed, they're confused, and they don't know what to do. And they don't know how to think. Yeah, in the, in the opening of the letter you write, uh, Dear Emily, your mother's father used to say, marry in haste, repent in leisure. Yes. Yeah, t- talk about that. That's a great opening line. Well, yeah, he had a million of them. Um, <laughs> but he was trying to say, be careful about who you marry. And It's interesting. And, that's your father-in-law. That's great. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> the, the stories I could tell. Yeah. <laughs> He's with the Lord now. But um I mean, he's right. You don't want to marry in haste. But again, the other side of it is you cannot be paralyzed by fear. You can't say, I've got to get this perfectly exactly right. I've got to marry, as I say later in the article, Jesus. I've got to marry a Messiah or it's going to be a disaster. So I, I think my father-in-law was right. He was saying, look, you've got to be careful about this. And, and yet there is a certain amount of faith that goes into this. And so what I'm trying to do with this article is say, yes, we live by faith, but we also you have to use our minds. We also you have to think through this and we have to pray through this and, and say, am I being wise about this? Mm-hmm. Both. Yeah. So, so uh, the last paragraph in your introductory part of this letter, before you get to the ills, you say you should marry a Christian man. This is necessary, but not sufficient. A man may profess faith in Jesus, but live a godless life. Setting aside external appearances and internal butterflies, what should you seek? I offer you seven questions. And the question's all, you know, does he? And then you've got an L word. So yeah. I, I love this. Let's start to go through this. And um, let's start with the first first one, which you say, does he love? This is one people obviously would expect. Yes, but I think the... The key concept there, I, I learned this in a book by Brian Chapel on marriage, um, and I think he actually took it from someone else himself. That most people or men, if their wife was tied to a train track by a, an evildoer and the train was coming and he had to untie her and hurl her off the track and die at the train, they would do that, right? I will save you from this terrible person who is going to harm you. That's great. But you know what? Most of us aren't going to be in that position. I, I am doubtful. I don't know if you've had to, Walt, but I've never had to untie my wife from a train track with a, with a train running toward her. Uh, but I have had to take the garbage out. You know, I, I have had to change diapers. I have had to listen to her, which I know is another one of the points. My point is that love is in daily situations, as Paul Tripp talks a lot about. You know, love is daily details of life. So in the daily details of you're dealing with one another, does this man love you? Does mm-hmm. he care for you? Uh, you know, you can, you, you can multiply the examples by the thousands, but how does he treat you moment by moment? Is he living for you or is he living for himself? Observe those things, consider those things. Because honestly, if, if he's a selfish louse now, do you think it's going to change after you get married? No, no, that's going to be multiplied. That's going to be magnified. So look at the daily moments of the way he treats you. Yeah. And, and I think that that in and of itself is going to be a big uh, tale of where everything's going to go. Yeah, you know, when I think about what you just said, marriage, and, and we need to talk to our kids about this, those who romanticize marriage, and I, and I think there's fewer and fewer of those in our culture, I would, I, I would believe, 
I don't have data on that, but, you know, just anecdotally you see that. But those who would romanticize marriage, you know, they, they believe that the things that they see now will disappear once they're married. And, in fact, what happens is the things that they see now are just going to be magnified. You know, your blinders will come off. You'll see them more. And, 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 and it, yeah, if not dealt with, those things, those things will advance and they will grow. I think that, you know, one of the aspects of, of love that we, that we really don't understand in our culture is the definition of love. We have equated love, I think, with infatuation at times. I think increasingly we equate love with that physical act of, you know, quote-unquote making love, which I don't really like that terminology at all. I think it, it really drains love of its meaning and derails love. Uh, from what it actually means. When you, and I think youth workers need to hear this, parents need to hear this, because we need to reboot and really understand what love is. Can you just give us a little bit of a, a working definition of, of what we're talking about here? My, my favorite def definition is from Martin Luther. Love is seeking the advantage of the other. Mm. Love is seeking the advantage of the other. And that is everything from after you've had surgery helping you to who gets the last piece of pumpkin pie. Love is seeking the advantage of the other. And in a good marriage, and this is not an original thought with me, uh, it's a competition to outlove each other. My, one of my favorite marriage stories, I'll tell it quickly, is from Dan Doriani of Covenant Seminary. He talks about having a, a seminary student over for uh, helping him work in his house. And, and he stayed for lunch and they're sitting there and there's one piece of strawberry rhubarb pie left. And he and his wife get into an argument over who is going to have the pie. He wants her to have it and she wants him to have it. And the student laughs and says, in my house, we would have just dove for the pie. Whoever was fastest got it. It's not love. Love is seeking the advantage of the other. You really mm. want that pie. Mm. You have it. I love that. That's, that's really good. I, yeah, it, you know, we, we are so selfish when we think about, uh, you know, this whole idea of expressive individualism in our culture right now where the individual is sovereign rather than God being sovereign. Everything is about me. And and this extends even to how we understand, you know, the, the good God-given gift of, of sexuality and, and sex. And we've removed it from the context of marriage, and we, we've even gone even a step further and removed it from the context of, um, you know, the emotional connection we make with another. And when we think about what we hear is happening, the rules of, of hooking up on the college campus, you don't even exchange names or hugs or anything. It, it's purely, you know, a transaction where I am receiving and, and you're defining love in, in other ways. By the way, I went, you know, you mentioned Dan, we've had Dan on the podcast. I went with Dan and I are to college with Dan and I do remember a time he was in line in front of me in the dining hall and he took the last piece of pie. So hypocrite. Yeah, actually, I just made that up. No, Dan's a great guy. And I love that story. So yes. that's that's the way we're to live. Now, I'm, I'm being challenged personally here in some big, big ways. So I see Chris nodding. Yes, as well. So this is great. OK, so we we're talking to Tom Stein about his letter to his daughter, these seven L's about husband hunting that sounds weird husband hunting but in so many ways you know we're not 
We're, we're not demeaning marriage in any way by that, but we're going to come back after this break and continue our conversation and start working through the next six. Stick with us. If you enjoy listening to Youth Culture Matters and would like to support the ongoing efforts of this ministry, you can do so by visiting cpyu.org giving to make a donation. Your prayers and financial support make this podcast possible. Well, we're chatting about marriage and what it means to enter into a Christian marriage and specifically for a young woman, you know, what to look for in a husband and then also to our young men. This is both for my daughters and my sons. You know, who, who do you need to be? What does it mean to be a good husband? And we're talking to Tom Stein about his letter that he wrote to his daughter, a letter to my daughter, which appeared in print uh, uh, in the January-February 2022 edition of Touchstone Magazine. Well, by the way, we'll be including a link to this in the player notes, uh, if you go to cpyu.org and find the player for this particular episode of the podcast, you'll find the link to the article and to everything else that's mentioned here by Tom. And what Tom's done here is he's gone through, uh, rooted in Scripture, by the way, and this is what's so beautiful about this, rooted in Scripture, seven uh, questions, you know, that he asks, does he, and then puts a word in, you know, that begins with, oh, we already talked about love, does he love and now let's move on to the second. You know, we'll talk talk about these here. Does he like? Yeah, this one really got me curious as I started to read it, Tom. I, I, it got me because it was hit. It hit me very early in my life. I was probably a young teenager when someone, a couple, said that to me. They said, "Do you do you do you like each other?" And this couple did like each other. They still like each other. They're still living. If you think about it, Walt you're going to spend a lot of time with your spouse. Now, I, I know some spouses find ways to not spend time together, but that's not really a marriage. If you're going to be married, you're going to spend a lot of time with your spouse. Do you like them? Do you like this young man, uh, oh daughter of mine, that you might be marrying? Do you like being with him? Do you like going out to dinner with him? Do you like um, possibly going on vacation with him? Do you like you know, driving in the car with him to church, whatever it may be. Look, we all have unique personalities. Uh, I've been married 33 years and I'm still trying to appreciate every aspect of my wife's personality. And she's still trying to appreciate every aspect of mine. But why would you spend your life with somebody you didn't like? Why would you, why would you commit yourself to someone who you really don't enjoy being with? I can't go chapter and verse on this in the scripture, mm-hmm. but but to me it seems just just so common sense. Yeah. Do you like each other? Do you want to be with each other? You know, I, I like what you said in here, uh, and you 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 started. You say we all have unique personalities, which you just verbalized here. Yes, and then you follow up. Say everyone can be both appealing and appalling. <laughs> And uh, we tend to, you know, I don't know, human nature, I think, especially when we get into marriage, we, when we, when we look at how the scales tip for ourselves, uh, we tend to lean more into, well, you know, I'm an appealing guy and there can't be anything about me that's appalling. And, you know, the, the beauty of this is that in marriage and, and I've learned this and I'm still learning this, you know, 40 years is 
uh, there's a lot of me that probably is appealing, but I've been exposed to a lot that is appalling. And, and, you know, sometimes I don't see that. Sometimes I do. And, and, and a lot of times it takes my wife. And, you know, this is where I think two people, you know, it's that iron sharpens iron and, and God refines us and grows us. You know, marriage is not this easy thing. Uh, we're, I always say we're two broken people living in a broken world. We've raised broken children. Uh, Chris, Chris knows we work with broken people. Uh, you know, it's just the way it is. And so, so I, I not, no pun intended, like what you're saying here. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me, like, I, I think about this, like, why, why would you marry someone who you say you love, but you don't like? You know, I, and I guess we've seen that happen. Can you can you talk to that? Um, you know, some ways to. You did ask some some questions about this. You know, you said he will he will not marry her for what he wants her to be, but for who she is. You know, I'm thinking of a quote from Benjamin Franklin I read recently: "Search yourself for your vices; search others for their virtues." Mm. And I think that's the key to it. As I look at my wife or as you look at your wife, look at the virtues, focus on the virtues. We all have things about us that are irritating and weird. And, and my wife is one of the most likable people you'll ever met, you'll ever meet, but she still has some weird things about her. I have weird things about me. Focus on the things that are appealing. That's why I say, you know, some women are quiet. Yeah. Uh, some women are chatty. Some guys are quiet. Some guys are chatty. Some people are organized. Some people are not. Try to focus on those things that are appealing. doesn't mean you ignore the appalling things. There's times you have to say things to your spouse and encourage your spouse. But, but if you focus on their virtues and you appreciate and enjoy their virtues, you will like them more. But, but if you're not married yet, you do have to wrestle with that. Look, is this somebody that for the next X number of years I'm going to live with and be miserable with? If that's the case, I think you need to be very thoughtful about that. You have to learn to like the person. You have to find a way to like the person. And, and if you can't, you, you better be hesitant. Yeah. You know, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking back to my time in college. We talked about Geneva College, you know. And uh, I arrive as a freshman, and I'm in an apartment dorm where I have four roommates. Yes. And, you know, we, we stuck together for a couple of years, this, this group of five. Uh, we, we enjoyed each other. I mean, there was no doubt about that. I mean, I think we liked each other. But the reality was that there were things about each other that just personal habits and yeah. things that came out of that we came to college with out of our backgrounds and the way we did things, you know, when we were growing up in our homes. I mean, it could be anything from, you know, personal hygiene to, you know, how you enter and exit a room and the level that you talk at. And there were things that we just annoyed each other no end on. And, and I don't know if I ever sat there and thought, to myself, I, I'm guessing knowing myself, thinking about myself back then, man, I can't wait. I mean, I'll, I'll tolerate this, but I can't wait till I'm married and I'm with someone who doesn't annoy me uh, and I don't annoy. And, and the reality is that, you know, a marriage is like that. You know, we have yes. that. We have, like, as you said, those annoyances. So we do yes. work. We do work through those. And I guess you would say, obviously, don't look for perfection right no. out of the gate. Yeah. 
No, no. And, and, and you've got to always say to yourself, am I likable? Yeah. Am I the kind of person somebody wants to like? In other words, you're not just standing in judgment on the other person and saying, well, she's not likable enough. Yeah. He's not likable enough. Am I being likable? You know, as I think about this, you know, we're both Presbyterians here, so we we understand human depravity. Yes. Uh, we're learning about human depravity, obviously. How, how does that, uh, you know, a good doctrine of sin and depravity play into what it means to enter into a marriage? I mean, I'm sure you've counseled couples, premarital counseling and things like that. Are there some ways that would be helpful for all of us, those listening, to to lean into that and and just let kids know from a, I mean even from a young age uh, these are two as we said earlier broken people coming together is that helpful it, it is I think of the title of Paul Tripp's book on marriage what did you expect and he <laughs> talks about how how marriage is about expectations and so I have to expect I'm a depraved sinful person marrying a depraved sinful person mm. i have to expect she's going to sin against me in one way or another now the gospel is the answer for that we we, we deal with sin we forgive sin we reconcile but you have to expect there are going to be bumps there are going to be problems and that's why we all need the gospel the opposite of the fear i talked about before is that there's still especially in christian circles that idealism oh i'm going to marry this guy or oh i'm going to marry this girl and it's going to be perfect and when i do premarital counseling i say you know i got news for you the first year of your marriage is the hardest because you're figuring this person out and often it comes down to those daily things i can't believe that guy leaves is used toothpaste in the sink and doesn't wash it down the sink. Well, that's because he's a depraved person who only thinks of himself sometimes. Mm. So yeah. yeah, I think a healthy dose of total depravity is a healthy dose of reality. And we have to understand that. You know, next time I'm with a group of parents in a room when I'm when I'm speaking, I think one of the questions I'll ask is, uh, be honest now, you know, by a show of hands, how many of you in the first year of your marriage had a moment or multiple moments where you thought to yourself, what in the world have I done? You know, and, and it would be everybody if we're honest. I yes. think that's, that's true. Let's go on to that third uh, question. You, you Well, uh, yeah, the third one. Does he labor? I think we're made to work. You probably learned that from people like Dan Doriani yep. and Steve Garber and some of the guys you were telling me you went to college with. We are made to work. Men are made to work. And so what I was saying to my daughter, who is a very hard worker, I might add, is you want to marry somebody who also is a hard worker. Uh, it does not mean they're a workaholic. It does not mean they worship their work and they're never home. But whether it's whether it's vocational work uh, whether it is being willing to cut the grass, whether it is willing to volunteer in the church, whether it is willing to help a neighbor. Again, does this person have to be perfect? No. Does this perfect have all the skills in the, does this person have all the skills in the world? No, I don't. But is this person willing to work? Um, you know more about culture than I do, but there is this feeling that there are a lot of young men out there who don't know how to work. Uh, and I don't want my daughter to marry someone who does not know how to work. I don't want my daughter to marry somebody who knows only how to work. I don't want, to right. want, want her to marry somebody who will neglect her because he's working all the time. 
But I, I think you've got to look at this young man and say, is he willing to, whatever his work is, to do it, to be responsible at it? Again, that, that, that feels, that feels I, I know for some people that feels almost 1950s-ish, but I think it's important. Yeah, we've certainly drifted away from that. You mentioned that. And, and I think as we look at, you know, what's happened in the pandemic and, man, you drive down the street and wherever there is a, a place of business, whether it's a restaurant or, you know, a, a, a welding shop or an automobile repair shop or, you know, whatever. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't matter what it is. Pe- people are, you know, we're, we're hiring we need people, and so many are not working. I love what you're saying here as well, and I don't want to skip over this about Sabbath. Yes. Mention that. I believe in the Sabbath, obviously, the rhythm of work and rest, six days of, of, of your labor and one day of rest. And I think that does speak to the workaholic aspect of things. You know, is your husband, in this case, while writing to my daughter, is your husband or your wife able to take Sabbath? Now, I understand if, if you're raising children and, 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 and there are things that go on in your life that you can't strictly take a Sabbath the way you would like. But does this person have the ability to rest? I mean, there's always the extremes here. Is this person able to set aside their work? Is this person able to relax with you? Is this, is this person able to come home at the end of the day and listen to you, which again is one of the other L's, because they're able to set aside their work and, and focus on you? Uh, again, perfectly, no, we all need to grow in this, but is the Sabbath principle part of their makeup? I think that's a valuable thing and something that, that you need to look for and you need to talk about. The fourth question, does he lead? This is, this is one that I know some of our listeners may go, now, well, all right, what are you talking about here? But I love the way you frame this, and I think it's, I think it's dead on. I think the scripture is dead on when it tells us that men should lead. And, and so I want, and, and, and this is a hard one because the young woman I mentioned at the beginning uh, and my daughter are both very strong young women. They both have many good leadership qualities. And so it would be easy in both of those cases for them to dominate their husband and to be the, the sole leader in the home and the husband follows along. And one of the things I've said to both of them is you need to find a man who is strong enough to lead you. Again, you know, read the article. That's not domination. That's not abuse. That's not ignoring your gifts and graces. But are they willing to do things like initiate discussions? Are they willing to teach with wisdom and conviction? Do they provide structure and accountability? Do you set an example? Again, who's perfect? But these are the kinds of things you are seeking to see in a young man. Uh, and, and, and again, if you don't see those things, I would say I have, I've been in counseling, Walt, with a lot of women who are crying out for their husbands to lead. Please lead me in a godly way. Don't abuse me, which is what some men do. Yeah. But also don't be so passive that, that I'm carrying the whole way to this marriage and the whole way to raising these kids. So, so no matter how strong you are as a young woman, I think you want to find a, a young man who is willing and able to lead. Yeah, you don't want someone who is spineless, nor do you want someone, as you say here, who would uh, c- cause a wife to suffer yes. because they're bullies. 
And right. and this is this is the problem with the way when as soon as you say leadership, you know, and you talk about a man leading in his marriage, some people automatically default and say, well, you're you're saying it's 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 a domineering bullying, and that's not what you're talking about. No, no, the abuse of a thing does not remove the existence of a thing, though. Just because leadership has been abused, that does not mean we do not have leadership. We have leadership. The Bible calls us to leadership. So whenever I do premarital counseling, we wade through Ephesians 5. And I always say, you know, you go through wives submit, husbands lead. And I look at him and I say, so who do you think has the toughest job? And I think it is the husband. Because if you're going to lead in a Christ-like way, that's tough. Being a bully isn't tough. Being a slob isn't tough. But being a godly leader is tough. Mm. But, you, but you're looking, oh, my daughter, for a young man who's willing to strive to be that godly leader. Yeah. And, and you're not taking anything away from the position of, of a mom and all the difficulties of being a mom when you say that. And I think when a man does not uh, fulfill his responsibilities in a marriage, that just makes a mom's job just so incredibly tough. And you see so many women coming undone uh, just because they're carrying way more than they than they need to, and I, you know, I I I mean, I don't have data on this, but I just see when I look around, it seems to me that more men are dropping the ball and and leaving their wives with the need to 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 pick it up and carry it. Uh, you know, so many times you see that, and and it's just it's just tragic because that that does nothing to strengthen a marriage. It does nothing to glorify God. It does nothing to lead your kids. I mean, your kids grow up and they're going to have seen this. Yes. And either they are going to have learned from a bad example or they're going to run from a bad example. And I think this is one reason why marriages have, you know, fallen apart so much. So let's take yes. another break here. Uh, this is good, good conversation. And, and we're encouraging people. I mean, wrestle through this, right? Uh, think about what this means for you personally. Think about it, what it means for how you are teaching your kids, both through how, how you teach them verbally and then through your example. And for those of you in youth ministry, I mean, do your kids a favor and, and set them up with good, good expectations of not only what's required of them, but what to look for. Uh, the girls in our youth ministries, what to look for, obviously, in a husband and and how to think uh, about marriage. We'll be right back to continue our conversation with Tom Stein. I often hear grandparents say how glad they are that they don't have to raise kids in today's world. While these comments might not be very encouraging to those of us who are parents or who are doing youth ministry with kids today, they do recognize the fact that there are lots of confusing and dangerous cultural realities that kids need to navigate if they are going to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. In an effort to provide parents and youth workers with an easy-to-use tool designed to help kids find their way through the choices they face in today's world, I've written a new little book that can be used individually or in small groups, A Student's Guide to Navigating Culture. It's the shortest book I've ever written, but it's the one I believe will have the greatest impact in terms of discipling the emerging generations. If you want to teach your kids how to live in today's culture while following God's will and way, check out this new little book, A Student's Guide to Navigating Culture. 
You can learn more and order copies at cpyu.org. Well, we're chatting with Tom Stein about this letter that he wrote to his daughter. It's really written to all young women and, and I would say all young men about you know what to look for in a husband and these questions, these evaluative questions that need to be asked. And I'm telling you, as a, a guy who's been married 40 years, this has been challenging to me. It's been a reboot as I've read this multiple times. And I'm going to pass it on to my kids. We're going to talk about it at home because it's so, so helpful. I mean, we've recognized here in this podcast that no guy, no woman, no marriage is perfect, but we want to pursue relationships that bring honor and glory to God and really advance our human flourishing and and, and our witness, um, you know, to each other, to our kids, and, and to the watching world. And so in a world where marriage is really on a decline, I think this is a good conversation to have. So we went through, you know, the first seven, does he love, or first four, does he love, does he like, does he labor, does he lead? And now, you know, here, here are some really good ones. Um, and not to diminish those first, first questions, but okay, I'm going to say it. Does he listen? Let's talk about that. Would have been um, nice if you would remove this, you know, because my wife, when she reads it, yeah. I know, I know. And believe me, do, do not mistake my article as a claim that I do these things perfectly. But, you know, I'm a pastor and, and I do a fair amount of listening to people. And, and one of my challenges then when my kids were younger and now with my wife is to come home and listen. But, but I don't think it's just as a pastor. If you're a mechanical engineer, you know, you got to go sit and listen to your coworkers and, and, and hear what they have to say and understand what they're saying and respond to it. And then you come home and then there's your spouse. And are you willing to listen? And let's face it, let's be honest. Sometimes what your spouse is saying isn't as interesting as what your coworkers are saying. Sometimes your spouse maybe not, is not as intellectually engaging as maybe those people. Or they're talking about stuff you're not, not, not as interested in. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you love enough to listen to what your spouse is saying? Obviously, it goes both ways. But in this case, to my daughter, do you believe this man will listen to you as you walk through the stages of life, as you face the struggles of life, as you try to sort through the, the issues you are, are dealing with? Will he listen to you? And it's tough, but it's, but it's so important. Yeah, you know, you end this little section here on Does He Listen, where you say, no matter what his other charms may be, if he yes. will not listen to you much, he will not love you well. And I, I want to throw this in because I think that one of the roadblocks to this, besides just our human depravity, you know, and our willingness uh, or our propensity be, to become, and our willingness to become, you know, uh, just self-focused and, you know, I'm interested in what I'm interested in, and I don't want to hear you and anything you're interested in right now, is that we've got something unique with these generations now, and that is these smartphones, you know, and screens, yes. and just the amount of screen time that we have. Can you say something to that as well? Because, I, man, that is a roadblock to listening right now. You know, the fact that these wonderful tools we've been given have become, because we've allowed them to, we haven't managed them well, you know, for our good and God's glory, they become stumbling blocks 
relationally. They should be pulling us together, right? At least that's what we're told. And they divide us even, even in the home. And, And this is not original with you or me, but people say, you know, you sit down to dinner or whatever, put away your smartphone. Uh, I think you have to develop the art of conversation. When, when we were younger, when our kids were, were, were not very young, but still in that stage where they were pretty high maintenance, you know, a wise couple from family life said, you know, take, your, take your, your kids on, your, take each other on dates. And, and that's often when my wife and I listen to each other, the best is on dates. Practice the art of conversation. Practice the art of what you and I are doing right now. You talk, I talk. And, and the other person listens. If you don't practice it, you're going to lose it. And if you're on your smartphone all the time, that skill is going to atrophy. So you have to have the intentional discipline of we're putting the phones away. We're not going to a restaurant where you can sit there and stare at a football game. And we're going to sit there and listen to one another. It's not easy, but the way to make it easier is to do it. Mm. Yeah, you know, you remind me, we've talked on the podcast before about the fact that our habits form us. So we need to have yes. good habits that form us more into the image of Christ and more into the way and will of God as it's communicated to us in the scriptures. And if we if our habits are bad habits, that actually deforms us and yes. undermines all of our relationships uh, with each other. Uh, with the Lord, and and even with ourselves. So this is good. Okay, so let's go to number six. Does he learn? Boy, this is one we're we're sticklers on here, huh, Chris? Uh, Here at CPYU, we are really pushing in a world where everything's getting dumbed down, and especially, you know, with education, because you work in higher ed, you know, everybody wants to get the letters and a degree but take the path of least resistance, and it's really about education's about learning. It's not about, you know, the end game. It's about what happens while we're learning and what we learn. It's not about, you know, the, the passport to privilege and being able to get those letters behind their name or, or get a particular job, but just the process of learning. And, and honestly, to me, in many ways, this is the most important of the seven points because none of us love perfectly. None of us are completely likable. None of us labor as we should. We don't always lead as we should, and we don't always listen as we should. But are we willing to learn? I, I tell people the best best wedding sermon I ever preached was about seven years ago, and it was a, it was a young couple. And I, I said to them, you are who you are now. What are you going to be when you are 35? Yeah, that's why I say when a young man is 18 years old, we expect him to think, speak, and act like an 18-year-old. But when a man is 35 and he still acts like an 18-year-old, that's a problem. So is this young man whom you might marry a learner, not just intellectually, but spiritually and emotionally? Does he want to grow? Does he want to get better? Does he want to become more like Christ? Honestly, if that one is in place... I'm less concerned about the other six. But if this one is not in place, then the other ones aren't going to go anywhere. Is he teachable? Is he willing to be discipled by an older man? Is he willing to go and listen to the word preached and taught in the church 
is he willing by whatever form, whether it's reading or podcasts or whatever it is to learn? Is he willing to be told, hey, you messed up, you need to learn how to handle this better? That, that's so key because, yeah, look, Walt, were you ready to, were you 100% ready to be married when you got married? Of course you weren't. I, I don't think why you, you were. Why don't you let me answer that? Yeah. No. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, yeah, no, I wasn't. No, you, you answered it for me. That's right. Yeah, you knew. I, I wasn't. I no. wasn't. I look, I look no. back. I, you know, I think I had some preparation, but I wasn't completely ready. But by God's grace, if I've done anything right in marriage, it's because I've learned. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I think Lisa and I would both say neither of us had any idea what we were getting into. No. And, uh, and, and, and neither of us had any idea who we were getting into it with. Yes. You know, and, and, and that's not a negative thing. I mean, just in hindsight, you say, man, we thought we knew it all. And I, you know, being teachable, I love that word. I remember, um, before I, before I graduated, the day before I graduated from seminary, uh, up at Gordon Conwell, walking up the steps into the library and I was with a buddy of mine. He was getting ready to graduate as well. We'd gone through seminary together and I looked at him and I, as we were talking about, you know, how great this experience had been for us and what we had learned, it, it dawned on me this, and I verbalized this to him. I said, I really do wish I knew as much today as I thought I knew three years ago when I started here. And, yes. it, you know, it, I think it's the same thing with marriage. The more you know, the more you realize how much you don't know and yes. how important it is to continue to learn. And I like what you say here that one of the ways to learn is when he fails, does he learn from the errors of his ways? And that experience is one of the best teachers. I mean, to be humbled by the errors of our ways, to seek forgiveness, you know, to be to be vulnerable with our spouse and just say, I blew it. And yeah, oh, and man, when that happens, you know, pride just rears its ugly head and eclipses humility. And we have to swallow hard and just say, you know, I, I'm sorry. And, and yes. I really like that. Um, Isn't this what's all over the Proverbs? Yeah. What, what's the fundamental difference between the wise man and the fool? The fool continues to do the same thing over and over again. The wise man learns from discipline, learns from instruction, and finds a better way. And, and you want to marry a person. Again, this applies to men and women, obviously. But my daughter, I want you to marry a person who will learn and say, yes, I messed up, and now I'm going to try to, to forge a better path. Mm. That, that marriage will flourish. Even if you, like you and me, entered marriage kind of stupid, that marriage will flourish. If the marriage, if, if the guy just continues in the same patterns over and over and over again, you've got trouble. Yeah. Well, the last question you ask in this and you you unpack is will he last i think i learned this from tim keller in his marriage book um he he talks about having a vision for what your marriage can be um imagine yourself 40 years old 50 years old 60 years old 70 years old imagine this man um what's going to be there is there the character? Is there the substance? Is there the teachability that is, if God gives you those years together, as you grow older, uh, this will be a godly man. I mean, go back to the work thing. You know, when this guy retires, is he going to be the kind of guy who sits around and plays video games all day? 
Or is he gonna be the guy that goes out and wears himself out volunteering in the church and in the community? What can your marriage be? What can this person be? What can you be? Uh, it, it's a harder one. It's, it's, it's a hard one to get your brain around, really. And, and, and there's no doubt that there's a certain amount of guesswork and a lot of prayer in it. But, but do you see a guy you can grow old with? Um, again, not perfect. Um, you don't know the health situation, all the things you don't know, but, but could, you know, like a fine wine, right? Uh, will this person age well? Yeah. Let, let me ask you about this. Uh, so I'm thinking about, um, you know, our, our kids, uh, kids in a youth group and a youth worker working with kids and talking about these things. What, what role would it play to be able to talk to them and unpack with them traditional marriage vows and explain what the traditional mm. marriage vows are that have stood the test of time in, in the church. And, and when I say stood the test of time, I'm not saying they're used all the time because they're used uh, less and less as people write their own vows that many times, you know, my wife and I will be at a wedding and we'll hear some of these vows people recite and we're going, yeah. you know, what in the world? And, and other times we're at, at a wedding and they recite the same vows we recited, those traditional vows, and it is moving to us. It is a great, great reminder, I know for both of us, of what we have promised. Can you talk I, I, a little bit about that, wedding vows and equipping, you yeah. know, helping kids understand that long before they're, yeah, they're getting I, I, married? I'm thinking of Mark Buchanan. I think it's he who says, if I'm doing premarital counseling with somebody and they walk in and say, we want to do our own marriage vows, he goes, oh, 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 hold on here. Wait a minute. Um, he doesn't mind them revising things a little bit, but he's saying exactly what you're saying. The traditional marriage vows are good because they, they have a substance behind them that is important. And so, yes, I mean, there's a sense which you could use the marriage vows, your marital counseling, go through those marriage vows and, and say, what does this mean? What are the implications of this? How is this going to look in your marriage? And as you go through those things, you're, you're, you're getting your antenna up for what is it that I'm looking for? I mean, wouldn't it be a great thing for a youth leader with a bunch of, bunch of 17 year olds to do a few lessons on marriage vows? And maybe none of you guys are dating anybody. Maybe, maybe none of you have marriage on your radar and probably at 17, you probably shouldn't. But right now, as a youth leader, I'm gonna say to you, these are the kinds of things you need to be thinking about as you go to college or whatever, and you start thinking about these issues. So yes, the marriage vows, I think are very central to, to all of what we're talking about here. You are making a promise. And, and, the, and the point of the article is don't make the promise until you really believe you're in a situation where you can make the promise and keep the promise. Yeah, and you know, sometimes that promise is what you have to go back to in your yes. brain just to, to keep you together. And you start to think about love as a decision, love as a commitment, as opposed to some kind of, you know, infatuation or feeling. And we do live in a feeling-oriented world right now. I mean, it's not, you know, when you think about divorce, one of the things that you hear a lot of folks say when they're going, yeah, it's just not cutting it anymore for me. I'm not happy. And by the way, I'm, 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 you know, involved with this other woman or this other man over here because they make me happy. 
and God wants me to be happy. And, right. oh, man, what a, I mean, that's just a crock of all kinds of garbage, right? Well, and, you, you know where I first learned this, Walt, was, do you remember the book Tuesdays with Maury? Yeah. Uh, Mitch, yeah. Mitch Album yeah. wrote it. Um, you know, old, I believe, Jewish guy um, dying, and, and Mitch Album goes and just sits and talks to him. And, and Maury said, you know, he said, you're going to have all these problems in marriage, and you know the thing that's going to hold you together is your commitment to the marriage. You're committed to the person, yes, but you're committed to the institution. Mm -hmm. You're committed to the notion of I've made a covenant vow, right, before God and before people. And you're right. If, if, if you're just going to be followed, following your feelings around, that will fall apart. Because and I don't want to get you in trouble with your wife, Walt, but do you feel flowery, hot, fuzzy feelings for your wife 24-7? Uh, you broke up there. I didn't hear your question. <laughs> I, no, you know, it, it, I, yeah, I'll tell you what. I and I've talked about this because I don't, and she doesn't either. No, and no. you know, I I remember I I would talk to to parents and I would talk to students about the fact that, you know, nobody, no no married couple, wakes up every morning, every single morning, nose to nose, they're in the bed looking at each other, going, "Hey, good morning." So you know, like I couldn't wait to wake up. Just I mean, that, that's not the way that it works. And I, I remember years ago, I forget, I, I think I was, uh, I know exactly where I was. I could see where I was. I was in Wisconsin speaking to a group of people, and a guy came up to me afterwards. Only time it's ever happened. He came up to me and he goes, you know, I got to take issue with what you just said because you, you, my wife and I, we do that every morning. And he was angry at me for saying really? it. And, and um, you know, he was he was a middle-aged guy and and I, I asked him this question. I, I said, how long have you been married? He said, well, this is a second marriage for us both. And um, we've been married about, uh, you know, a month. And I'm thinking, OK, all right, I get it now, you know. Um, yeah. So, you know, I want to go back to something you said earlier, just a, a great practical thing when you talked about a youth leader taking 17 year old kids and unpacking the marriage vows. One of the things that I have recommended youth workers do is if in their church, uh, a couple is so inclined, a young couple that's getting married is so inclined, um, allow the, the youth group to actually come to the wedding, to see a Christian mm -hmm. wedding with traditional vows, and then leave from there. And you don't necessarily go to the reception, but you get together and you just, you know, well, what just happened in there? Yes. You know, what was that all about? I mean, an ex experiential opportunity to go through that. Another great learning uh, opportunity for our youth group kids is from time to time in in your youth group, bring in a couple that's been married 40, 50, 60 years. Yes. And and let them talk, you know, about what commitment is and the ups and downs of marriage and how, you know, love grows. I remember my dad on their anniversaries, he would say, you know, I, I want you guys to know, I two brothers, you know, I want you guys to know I love your mother more today yes. than on the day I married her. And, you know, we would we would look at the pictures of their wedding and, you know, 40 years later, we'd look at them and we'd go, you know, this is in our shallowness and our immaturity, right? We'd go, man, you guys, you, you look so well. I mean, what's so attractive about each other now? Mm -hmm. And yeah. that that's indicative of, of what we lean into when we're younger, these misunderstandings of that are just totally based on physical attraction and nothing else. But there's a beautiful thing God does as we grow older with each other and um, 
you know, I mean, I've got a wife who's become more attractive as time goes on. Yes. I, I, I know I've become less, attra- <laughs> less attractive. I look in the mirror and I see that. But, you know, just sticking together is just such a, it's just a beautiful thing. And to be able to un- stand back and think about what God's done, that's just a, a, yes. a great, great thing. And, yeah. and one, of the, one, of the, one of the undercurrents of this conversation, Walt, has been that of example. And that's what I'm thinking of when you talk about the youth group. And I think what, honestly, what I find, you asked me very back, way back at the beginning, you, you asked, you know, about what you see in young people now. And what I see is a lot of young people who don't have good examples. I, you see young men and women who want to honor God in their marriages, but they don't have a clue how to do it because they haven't seen it. And, and one of the roles of the church, I think, is exactly the kinds of things you're saying is godly couples need to be an example to these young couples. And a young man needs to look at, at, at somebody and say, oh, that is how a man loves his wife. That is how a man talks to his wife. That is how a man works and sacrifices for the sake of his wife. And so all through this is the issue of example. And what grieves me, I mean, honestly, what, what grieves me is that to the extent that my wife and I have been a good example to my kids, I feel like we're an exception to the rule. So many of my kids' peers have really lousy examples, and they're getting married. And I wonder, do they have any idea how to be married? Mm. Would you, as we finish up, um, say a word as a pastor to everyone who's listening? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking specifically two situations which, you know, we encounter all the time in ministry and and we know are prevalent unfortunately in our broken and sinful world that is one where one would be where a couple is just struggling it doesn't matter how long they've been married they they've just been struggling you know could you send them on a on a direction perhaps to get the help that would be necessary as an avenue to healing so i'd like you to speak to that to a couple who's struggling mm. and then i want you to say something because i know in our denomination we take this very seriously to the women who are, uh, let's just be blunt, they are not in a, in a marriage with a godly husband, and it, it is with someone who is perhaps abusive um, and overbearing. Just would you speak to that? Because I know in all of our churches we've had to deal with this. Again, we recognize we are broken people living in a broken world, and, and, and I, want, I want to be sure people hear that uh, as we're talking about this and, and maintaining our commitments, that that can be a, that we, we can be forced into into seeing that in the wrong way and, and in, in abusive situations, you know, yes. just bear up and you know you're obviously not being a good wife or tend to yourself more. I mean that is just, uh, it's, it's so hard and we know that that's happened. So, well, you know, my initial answer to both of your questions is seek help first seek the help of the lord and that's not just a throwaway line i tell people that my marriage got better when somewhere along the line someone bonked me upside the head and said why don't you get up in the morning and pray for your wife every day and that has really helped my marriage so seek the help of the lord first of all but for the struggling couple i would say seek help marriage is a community project marriage is a community project. We all need help. We all need example. We all need correction. So if you're struggling 
get help from a pastor, from a wise counselor, from another couple. Sin and destruction thrives in isolation. Seek help. It's a little harder with the woman with the ungodly husband. Obviously, that's that's very complicated. I will say again, seek help um, for people to help you. But the other thing I often would say to a woman is, you know, the only person you're responsible for ultimately is you. You're responsible for your responses to your ungodly husband. And again, I know there's a million complications here. If he's abusive, do you stay in the home and all those other things? But but one of the things you try to focus a woman in that situation on is what are your responses? What are your actions? Are you seeking to, as well as you can, love your husband in a godly way? And then you get into all of the other complications. Right. But the bottom line is the humility to say, I can't do this on my own. I need the help of the Lord and I need the help of God's people that I may thrive in my marriage. And that's true when you're my daughter who will get married someday. And it's true whether you're my age or your age. Hmm. I like the way you end the article. I'm just going to read these couple of sentences. Pray fervently, seek counsel. If God calls you to remain single, this too is a high calling. But if God calls you to marry, do not marry in haste. Ask these questions and follow the answers wherever they lead. Any, you've mentioned some resources, and hmm. uh, I'm curious if there's any more. You mentioned Tim Keller's book, which is titled yes. The Meaning of Marriage. Uh, you mentioned Paul's trip book, and as I said earlier, we'll include all the links to these on the player. Uh, anything else you'd recommend for folks? Um, yeah, I would, I would recommend Tim Keller's book. I would recommend Paul's trip book, Paul, Paul Tripp's book. I mentioned Brian Chappell's book, Each for the Other. And, and the good thing about that is that it is pretty much an exposition of Ephesians 5. It plays out the implications of, of what does it mean for the husband to leave and lead and the wife to submit. Honestly, the, my favorite book on marriage is a book called No Ordinary Marriage by Tim Savage. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Book. No. Um, it's, it's, I like it because it's not terribly long. But what I like about what Tim Savage does is he tries to give you a vision for marriage that's rooted in the cross, rooted in Christ, but then goes beyond to the idea of saying you can glorify God in your marriage. It's, it's kind of blown up what Tim Keller said. Look, you need to have a vision for your marriage. It can be this great thing, not just for your benefit, but for the benefit of everybody around you. So honestly, Tim Savage's book is my favorite book mm -hmm. on marriage because he gives you a sense of being beyond yourself, being beyond the moment and saying, if you keep this larger vision in mind, you can flourish in your marriage. Hmm. That's good. I, I'm going to add one other thing. As, we're, as you were talking there, uh, I'll have Chris put up a link to the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation yes. in Glenside. And, you know, those are friends of ours. We've recommended them before. They've put together a, a whole host of uh, mini books that would speak about marriage and relationships. I think New Growth Press is publishing most of those, and uh, I'll actually come up with a list of some that are really helpful related to some of these more difficult situations. They've got some books on, you know, abuse and, you know, yes. if your husband is addicted to pornography and, and different things like that, which really give good, biblically-based guidance, practical advice uh, to, to women and, and, in some cases, men. Um, you know, related to marriage and, and some of the issues and, and the real big humps as a result of sin that, that we'll encounter. So 
Hey, this yes. this this has been good, uh, Tom. I really appreciate the fact that you wrote this again. It's in uh, Touchstone Magazine, the January February edition for this year. We'll include a link to that. Uh, just out of curiosity, are you writing anything else for them? I, I not at the moment. I've written. I've just. I guess now that my aunt nest is empty, I feel like I have time to write. <laughs> and uh, I do write a blog of scripture meditations, but I also have written a few articles. I've put a couple in Banner of Truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had a couple of in, in there. Um, and yeah, one of these days, I hope to do something else for Touchstone. How can we find your blog? Um, it's. I'll give you. I'll send a link to you. How does okay. that sound? Okay. All right. It, it, it's really profound. All it is is scripture meditations. I'm trying to get through the whole New Testament. And I'm yeah. almost there. Yeah. Um, very simple, straightforward, 500 words, uh, a daily devotion um, that I hope is helpful to at least my wife, my mother, and a few other people. Great. <laughs> Great. Hey, thanks. And, uh, you know, blessings in your ministry, blessings in Thank your you. work. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. And for those of you who are listening, Again, uh, stick with us because we'll be back uh, with the next episode of Youth Culture Matters. We, we're going to love to have a conversation that you can listen into then. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.